Our topic tonight having to do with uh, Jerusalem Day being celebrated. Uh, we'll be looking a little bit at the book of Daniel, chapter 9 in particular. And this picture here is an interesting picture. This is uh, taking place, uh, it's a past Jerusalem day, and it's taking place right in front of the Damascus Gate. Now, the Damascus Gate is a very busy area, and uh, basically a, a flea market in front of Damascus Gate, and the street's right there. Uh, so they've got uh, all kinds of fruit and all kinds of stuff being sold there, and then empty boxes and peelings of things, often just uh, laying around. Uh, this is a, a, an Arab quarter, a very busy section of uh, Muslims and Arabs coming in and out of this gate. But on Jerusalem Day, there's a parade that goes through Jerusalem and it goes through the Damascus Gate. And so here's a picture of massive crowds with the Israeli flags uh, because uh, Jerusalem is a united capital and that's what Jerusalem Day is about. It's the celebration of the reunification of the city of Jerusalem, no longer divided. There was a wall dividing, a fence and barbed wire dividing the city in half. And so now it is united. And so to a little bit of history of Jerusalem, we actually have to go back to before King David, to go even back to the time of Moses. Uh, God told Moses to write down and wrote it in the Torah uh, that as we entered into the promised land, one of the cities, he mentioned many, one of them that was to be taken was Jebus. And uh, that came under the, what became part of the tribe of Judah, the area of Judah. And Caleb was leading that, and Caleb took many mighty cities and many high uh, mountain areas, and, but Jebus he did not attack, did not take, at least not recorded, uh, even an attempt, and so it was left under the Jebusites living there. And it continued that way for several hundred years, about 500 years, until David comes along and David decides to attack it when he becomes king, and overnight it becomes the victory. Uh, there's only like two or so verses in the whole Bible on this attack that uh, David says, whoever goes in and attacks the city uh, will become my commander and his cousin uh, Joab, uh, Joab, I think, does so and becomes his commander. Now, how could he, for 500 years, no one was even willing to attack the city because it's a peninsula and so it uh, has three valleys on, on three sides of it. And it comes out into a point, kind of like Florida a little bit, <clears throat> except with a valley and not water on each side. And then it's easy to put just walls on top of that and easy to defend just the one side that's easily uh, able to be attacked. <coughs> Excuse me. But David grew up in Bethlehem, just a few miles away from Jerusalem, and no doubt uh, taking his sheep around to find green pastures and keep moving them around, he'd have to move them probably around to the Jebus area, the city that eventually becomes known as Jerusalem. And there's a spring right outside the city, the Gihon Spring, and so that water is always flowing, and so if he needs water for his sheep, he can bring them there, and no doubt the grass around that area would be nice and green, and, uh, and so he'd probably bring them there, and sitting there and looking at the city, and I can imagine as a young boy, uh, always wondering in his mind, what on earth is this... Uh, this uncircumcised Jebusite city doing right in the middle of Israel. Why haven't we captured it yet? Why David, uh, Moses told us to capture it and, and God told us through Moses and we still haven't captured it. What is it doing right here? Probably was like a, an eyesore to him. And, uh, and so then he becomes anointed to become king and I have no doubt that he then began to plot and plan 
that when I do become king, which took several years, 20 or so years, before he actually becomes king, he's thinking, that's going to be a great capital. We haven't been able to conquer it in 500 years, and so that's going to be a terrific place. It's right outside my hometown, and I know exactly how to conquer the city. Because how they got the water in the Gihon Spring was they had a tower built up around the Gihon Spring, and then they would have people come down either through a ladder or, or maybe sending buckets down, and then bring the water up into the city from outside and the Gihon Spring on the outside of the wall down the bottom of the valley. And so again, as a young boy, I'm sure he stuck his head in that tunnel every so often, up in that shaftway, up in that tower, and uh, looked up there, maybe climbed around up in there, maybe you know, drank some water from it straight out of the mountain water coming. And, uh, and so then when he's anointed to become king, he goes, I know the perfect way to get in there. And so he tells his men, go up the water shaft. And that's exactly what they did. And again, just about two verses, not be able to conquer in hundreds of years, boom, overnight, they go up the water shaft, unnoticed, and conquer the city. And then it becomes Jerusalem, the city of David. David wants to build a temple for the Lord. God tells him, no, you're not going to be able to do that, but your son Solomon will do so. Solomon comes along and builds a beautiful temple uh, just outside of what was the city of David, on the northern side, on the side that was not easily protected on the side that doesn't have a valley there. And so on the mountain just above it, Mount Moriah, the same mountain where, where uh, Abraham offers his son Isaac, or willing to offer his son Isaac, and God stops him at the last moment. And um, David purchased that site, stopping a plague and uh, giving a sacrifice to the Lord up on Mount Moriah. And so that's right outside the city of the ancient city of the city of David of original Jerusalem. And so that's where Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. We go fast forward another several hundred years, 500 or so years, and we come to the time of Babylon, and, and Nebuchadnezzar comes through and destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple and takes most of the people captive to Babylon. Babylon is taken over by the Medo-Persians, and under the Medo-Persians, uh, Cyrus makes a decree that we can go back to Jerusalem about 70 years later to go back to Israel and rebuild the temple and to uh, restore it and restore the city and thus we start to do so and under Nehemiah and Ezra build the temple again and Jerusalem again is under Jewish rule and Jewish uh, dominion and, and leadership and the temple again holding its services once again. We go then under the Medo-Persians are taken over by the Greeks and uh, the Greeks initially, under Alexander the Great, were very favorable to the Jewish people and to our religion and allowed us to continue to worship and continue to have the temple. And even today, a lot of Jewish people are named Alex or Alexander, uh, probably as appreciation of what uh, Alexander the Great did for our people and allowed us to continue. But then he dies and he's superseded and we go several uh, kings later, several generations later, a few hundred years, and Antiochus Epiphany comes along and he puts a, a statue of Zeus in the temple, takes out all the pieces of furniture, the menorah, the ark, and, and all the other pieces of furniture. I guess the ark was already gone, but menorah and all the other pieces of furniture and removes them out of the temple and puts in idols and Zeus and all these other kind of things and sacrifices a pig inside and all the kinds of horrible things. And so then that leads to the Maccabees coming along and the Maccabees rebelling and fighting a war uh, that we have under the story of Hanukkah and liberating the temple again and then 
rededicating the temple, and that's where we get the word Hanukkah from, dedication. So they rededicated the temple back to God, and Jerusalem is now again uh, under uh, Jewish uh, worship and Jewish rule, and, uh, and that continues for a few hundred years, and um, in, in the temple, temple restored and rededicated, and then the Romans come along, and the Romans uh, allowed us to continue to worship uh, with some limitations and under their rule and their taxation, and Herod builds the temple and makes it even larger, a larger space for the temple. And so here is a picture of drawing of what it might have looked like. And so this is right, you're looking straight on at the corner of the southern wall, southern wall to the right, an ancient city of David down to the right there, a little peninsula off to the right. And the stairway is going in, and that's the entrance where everybody basically would enter into the temple to worship. And then you got the corner, southern wall, and then the western wall. And so then the western wall starting there and going to our left. And a staircase going up and an archway going up and another entrance into the temple to Solomon's portico and uh, into that area. And now I want you to take note of that archway, right? So you got that bridge going up, that stairway's going up and then over the bridge and there's an archway there. And if you notice there and how high it is there, and today we go and we stand down at the very bottom, right at the corner, of the, uh, of the southern and western uh, gate, and there's a stone there that's huge, it's bigger than a bus, and um, we're going to ask tonight, how did they get those stones there? And they're still not 100% sure how they moved those stones and got those stones. There's some different theories. These are some big, heavy, heavy stones uh, to move and put in place. And uh, so right there at that corner, and you can see how higher up then that archway is, and again, we'll take note of that here in a little bit. And so then the Romans, the Romans Messiah comes, Yeshua comes during the time of the Romans and uh, is uh, taken to Jerusalem and he's, he's killed in Jerusalem and resurrected in Jerusalem and ascends from Jerusalem or the Mount of Olives just outside the city. And then about 30 or so years after that, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. Uh, so once again, now the temple is destroyed again and worship in the temple stops again, there's no more temple. And then in 135, about 65 or so years after that, uh, Bar Kokhba leads a revolt against the Romans, loses. Romans now really, really angry again. And so then even cause even more destruction, more desolation, and, and the dispersion throughout the Roman kingdom takes place. And then the Jerusalem goes through this changing of lots of hands after Rome falls. Then the uh, Byzantines come in. Uh, Christian Byzantines come in around the 300s or so and begin building uh, churches uh, under Constantine and Constantine's mother. And so we have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's not the place where I believe the Holy Sepulchre was, but nonetheless they built a church in this location and they say it was there and, uh, and that's still visited today. 1,700 years later that church is still there and people still frequent uh, that building in Jerusalem. And then the Muslims come and take it over again, and then around the 600s or so, uh, the uh, Dome of the Rock is built on the Temple Mount, where the temple was and is still there today. Is a picture from the 1800s, and again, doesn't look very occupied or cared about then. Grass reeds just growing up uh, through there, um, so wasn't very very populated then. Then, so then after the 600s, then the Crusaders come in a few hundred years later, and the Crusaders come, and then they. Uh, Christianized Jerusalem again and built churches again and 
and um, kill a bunch of Muslims and a bunch of Jews. And then a few hundred more years go by, and then the Muslims come back in, and I think it was the Turks then, and then maybe the Ottomans. After that, the Solomon comes in and, uh, and puts Jerusalem under Muslim rule again, and um, destroys all the churches, and destroys all the uh, temples, and builds a bunch of mosques. And then um, after that, under different Muslim rule, and we have the walls being built. The walls were built about, I think, the 1700s, the current walls around Jerusalem. And the current walls around Jerusalem do not encompass the original city of David. Uh, I said that little peninsula that stuck out, uh, that was basically discarded, and then the walls were built around the Temple Mount area and extending to other parts of the ancient city. And those walls are still there uh, today. And so Jews began to come... Uh, immigrate in mass again in the 1800s under the Zionist movement, uh, wanting to live. The Jews had always remained in, in parts of Israel throughout the last 2,000 years and in Jerusalem. And uh, so again, more massive immigration taking place under Theodore Herzl's vision to, to come back to the land. And um, uh, if the British would have allowed us to come back in more mass, probably wouldn't have had to experience the Holocaust like we did, but unfortunately... Uh, we did, and I guess the Ottomans and, uh, and, and the British weren't allowing a lot of immigration, but we started to come back, and uh, this is a picture from the temple, from Mount of Olives, going down the Kidron Valley, and then across, and then you see the, that's the eastern wall, and, uh, and the Temple Mount there with the Dome of the Rock on top. And I mentioned that archway, right, and so this is the western wall here or a portion of the Western Wall, and there's that arch. You see that tree there, and the little donkey, and the little guy there? And that's that archway. Now, we talked about that it was way high up, right? About 50, 60 feet up. And the dirt has accumulated over the last 2,000 years and built up. This picture was taken in the 1800s, early 1900s. And the dirt just accumulated all the way up that high. Just dust and debris blowing in. And, uh, and so that's that little portion of the archway coming out of the Western Wall that we looked at before, and that's been excavated all the way down to the original pavement, where I said we stand down at the very bottom of the southern and western wall corner, and, uh, and so that's excavated all the way down, and down at the bottom they found stones from the temple, because as Yeshua prophesied, not one stone would remain upon another, and so when the Romans destroyed the temple, they threw it over the wall, right, over the top there, over the wall, landing down, again, whatever, 70, 100 feet down, and crushing the pavement down there and just a pile of stones down at the bottom. And we'll sing a song a little later after the sermon, uh, and uh, you'll see some of those stones, you'll see some people standing, uh, some of the people here tonight you'll see standing uh, in front of those, those stones. So then comes 1947, and the UN partitions, comes up with this partition plan to divide uh, what was then called Palestine, into two parts. Now, a little before this, there was a Belfort, Belfort Declaration, uh, British Foreign Secretary, who had a plan to make all of Palestine, which would include Transjordan, which would include today's Jordan, under Israel. But that got greatly modified to give Jordan to, the Transjordan section of it, to, uh, to the Jordanian king, and, uh, and then divide up what's left between the Arabs and the Jewish people. And um, 
So this, I don't know if you can see this, it's kind of a little different color here, this kind of a tannish color down here, as opposed to the green. Right, this down here on the bottom, this is all desert, basically all desert. Beersheba is down here, but all the rest is basically uh, desert, it's the Negev Desert. And, uh, and so that was part of the Jewish portion. And then uh, it's separated, there's a green portion over here, Gaza, and green, and green, and green, and green, and green there. And then another brownish or tan section by Tel Aviv. And that narrow strip is about the width of Pinellas County, right, which is pretty narrow, it's maybe a few miles wide, uh, five or six, seven miles wide, and from about St. Petersburg to Crystal River, right? So maybe, what, an hour's drive or so, a little more than that, uh, 40, 50 miles or so, uh, is how wide and how, or rather how narrow and how long that section is. Right? So not very much at all. And then again, cut off with, again, this green Arab section here, and then just a small tan portion around the Sea of Galilee, and Galilee was to be for the Jewish people. So the Jewish people section was supposed to be divided into three different sections, one of it very, very narrow, and one of it mostly desert, or almost all desert, and then one section up by the Sea of Galilee, and that was it. And the Jewish people said, yes, we'll take that. <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> we'll take anything. And the Arabs said no, and immediately the Arabs attacked, and so the Arabs living in the green area, as well as Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and Iraq, all attacked Israel, all of those were already uh, nations with, um, except for the green area, all of those were already nations with armies and uh, ammunition and trained, a lot of them were trained uh, by the British, and the British allowed the, the Arabs within uh, the green area to have weapons, they did not allow the Jewish people to have weapons, they did not allow Jewish people to immigrate even after World War II, they were stopping immigration, very little flow of immigration, and then the British just pulled out, and the British didn't even uh, vote. They abstained during the, the UN vote and just turned it over, uh, again, basically to the Arabs. And so the war started. And so five nations, plus those in the green section, all attacked the Jewish people in those three uh, very hard to defend. Could you imagine, again, this narrow area? Could you imagine uh, defending Pinellas County and, and, and West Pasco, basically, and a little bit of West Hernando against? all the rest of the United States, right? I mean, basically, that's, that's it, right? That's what they had to defend. And they, and they won, amazingly, uh, won. And so uh, within, and this is uh, the Zion Gate entering into Jerusalem. So there was the Jewish quarter uh, where the Jewish synagogue was and Jewish homes were. And a very fierce battle took place there. Uh, the Jordanians uh, moved into that section. And so on the outside, there's the Zion Gate going in. And you see all the potholes all around the gate. And that's from the, the war that took place there, the battle that took place there, and the Jewish people lost the old city of Jerusalem. They were not able to gain that in that uh, defensive war. And so Jordan then had all of the ancient city of Jerusalem, all of the inside of the walled city of Jerusalem, and began then systematically to destroy house after house, synagogue after synagogue, and just level the whole area. Um, and, uh, and so that's still left there today, the potholes, as a remembrance of that battle that took place there, and all the people that were massacred and killed inside. So after that war, war ended around 1949, 
and so in 1949, the lines were then divided up, and so now you see the tan area, and the tan area has now greatly expanded and is now unified. It's one solid tan area. So the Tel Aviv area is widened a little bit and extended a little bit and connects with the Galilee area and connects with the Negev area. And so those are the, the 49, 1949 armistice lines where a basic truce or armistice was decreed and called and the fighting basically stopped. At least the war stopped. Some fighting continued, but, but the war stopped for the most part at that point. And so those are the lines. So anytime they talk to go to pre-67 lines, pre-1967 lines, and that's still talked about a lot in the news, when they talk about going back to the pre-1967 lines, they're really talking about going back to the 1949 armistice lines. And those lines remained in place from 1949 until 1967. And so it's the lines that were drawn in 1949. And that's, that's a, add another 20 years onto how long those lines have been there is significant, I think, when we talk about these things. Uh, and so to go back to something that, you know, was decided that long ago. So then in 1967, those same Arab nations, uh, and I think some more, uh, attacked Israel again in the 67 war, known as the Six-Day War, 1967. And at that war, Israel gained this Golan Heights area, this, this striped area up here in the top in the north, the Golan Heights, which was very important, as well as what's called the West Bank because it's west of the Jordan River and including Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem, as well as Gaza, which was part of Egypt, and as well as Sinai, uh, which was part of Egypt, and so they gained all of that land. And then in a truce, a peace agreement with Egypt, they gave back the Sinai, offered back Gaza, and the Egyptians said, no, we don't want Gaza, no thank you. And so then Gaza, you know, has remained kind of in, in nowhere land since that. Now I should say on this Jerusalem, going back to this 1947 picture, Jerusalem, as listed here, was to be decreed as an international zone. So in 1947, when the UN decided this demarcation plan, giving the Jews this very small area, these three small areas, and the, the Arabs having the green area, the bigger area, and then said Jerusalem will remain as an international city, not ruled by Jews or Muslims, not to have a Jewish mayor or a Muslim mayor, but under international, well, who's going to rule over this international city then, right? The UN, right? And if not a Jewish mayor and not a Muslim mayor, well, what does that leave left, really? You know, and so there was a plot and plan to take over Jerusalem uh, by, I believe, a certain plan, a certain group. But it didn't take place because of the war. And so that war then took place, and then Jordan ended up ruling over Jerusalem instead for those almost 20 years. And then in 1967, Israel was able to liberate Jerusalem and gain Jerusalem back. And that is what we're celebrating, observing uh, this weekend this uh, Jerusalem Day, that liberating of Jerusalem in 1967. And so here's a newspaper decreeing that, and here's a picture of the soldiers entering into the Western Wall and uh, during that day of liberation and, and winning the battle and entering back into the Western Wall, because we weren't able to pray at the Western Wall for the whole time Jordan had rule over it. Uh, prior to that, we were able to, uh, but then 19... Uh, 49, 
Jordan had rulership over it and did not allow, again, they destroyed all the, all the synagogues and, and, and would not even allow us to go in and even have worship at the Western Wall. We were not allowed in the city, at the ancient city, at all. And so then when we liberated the city, we were able to go back to the Western Wall and someone grabbed a, a picture of these three guys, right? And they're just kind of looking like in awe, right? Just, just, have anyone ever seen this picture before? Yeah, yeah. Actually, it was in one of the songs we did in the beginning. Right? So you probably, everyone here saw it. Uh, but yeah, it's a pretty famous picture of that, uh, depicting that scene of the liberation of Jerusalem and liberation of the wall. Now watch what they're going to do here. Some little uh, computer graphic, boom, and now they're in color. Right? So the black and white picture made into color. But watch that picture again. We're going to do some more little magic here. And watch these three guys. Boom. And now they've aged about 50 or whatever, so many years, and that's the same three guys posing at the, basically the same spot with the same type of look, posing in the same direction, right? And so, uh, pretty, uh, pretty neat. Now, the interesting thing, I think one of the interesting things is the guy on the left, his name is Itzhak, right? So Isaac, right? And then the guy in the middle, his name is Zion, Right, Zion, Zion. So Zion uh, is a term that's used for all of Israel, and sometimes it's used just for Jerusalem. Right, so Zion. And the guy on the right, his name is Chaim, meaning life. So Isaac, right, representing the Jewish people, Zion representing Jerusalem, the city, and Israel as a whole, and lives. Right. So Isaac, the Jewish people, and Jerusalem lives. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> These three guys with those three names, right there. Right. And so they're, they're looking again, the same type of gaze they got in there. And, and the same guy who took the original picture, he's around 90 years old at the time of the second picture, and so they got him to come out too, and so all four of them, and he retook the picture. And, uh, and they're kind of standing in the same type of pose. Uh, you see uh, on the right side, uh, or on the left side, uh, Chaim has his arm around Zion there, and, and same in the picture there. Um, one of the only differences is here in the left picture, uh, Zion has his helmet on the outside of his shirt, and on the right side of the picture, Zion has the helmet on the inside of his shirt. Now, I don't know why they did that, but they, I don't know if you could see that, right? I mean, <laughs> you don't get that. All right, nonetheless. All right, so this is what the Western Wall looked like when they liberated it. This small, little, narrow area. Because they had begun building and, and built up all this other stuff, and so it was just a very small area to get to the Western Wall. Now, the Western Wall was a retention wall. We talked about Herod widening and expanding the Temple Mount and remodeling the temple on top. Well, to do so, he basically cut off the top, right? Like any excavating you see going on anywhere, they're doing work, right? They're cutting, and cutting the hill and then filling in the low spots, right? So you've got a hill and they want it flat on top, so he cuts off the hilly top, the roundish top or whatever, cuts that down, makes it flat, and then fills in the side areas and builds it up. Well, to keep the dirt from then flowing back down again under rain, you build walls up, right? So you build a retention wall to hold the dirt in place. And so the western wall and the eastern wall and the southern wall are all, and northern wall too, are all retention walls. And that's what the Western Wall is. The Western Wall was really just a retention wall. Because again, the stones of the temple were cast down. Right, so we already talked about that. So this is, they're standing at the retention wall, the Western Wall, uh, of the ancient, 2,000 years ago, walls that Herod put up. And this is what it looks like today. I took this picture just a few weeks ago. And so you see a group down there uh, dancing down the bottom, forming circles and... Synagogue's coming, praying. This is on Friday night, just before the sunset. 
and people starting to gather, and it gets even more crowded and more intense in there, and just really neat experience. Uh, just by happen chance to this week, um, uh, I was talking with John, and, and he just brought up that his favorite part of the trip, I think Richard asked him, what was your favorite part? He said, my favorite part of the time in Israel was Friday night at the Western Wall. And then last night, we were talking with Erin, and again, I didn't specifically ask her, and she just blurted out, my favorite time when I went was Friday night at the Western Wall. Isn't that interesting? And so next time, we're only going to spend two days. Forget about the 10 days. We're just going to go, go Friday, do the Western Wall, and come back. That's all we've got to do, right? Make the trip a lot easier. Anyway, so that's what it looks like on a Friday night. And there again from the Mount of Olives. So we saw a picture of that in the 1800s, and that's kind of the same view. And so you've got the eastern wall there facing us and the eastern gate there to the right. And then the corner of the eastern gate and the southern wall. So we were looking at the other end before. Now this end of the southern wall and the gate there. And so they would enter in through there. And these now are part of the walls that surround the ancient city. And again, the city of David, original city of David goes off to our left and is not inside the ancient walls. Now to some text, some Bible text uh, from Psalm 122, verse 6. Commandment, in a sense, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and then a promise, and they shall prosper that love you. So those that love Jerusalem, those that have a heart for Jerusalem and then Passover for centuries, uh, still in the Haggadah today, uh, next year in Jerusalem, because during the time of the dispersion, our heart was always in Jerusalem, always to be able to go back to Jerusalem, always be able to go and liberate it and to have worship there and to pray there and to live there. This has always been people, even though there's been massacres and we saw over and over again, changes taking place, always Jewish people moving to Jerusalem to be in Jerusalem. As the psalmist says, David wrote, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and those who love you will prosper. There's been a love for Jerusalem down through the ages. And so as we think about that, and we want to pray for Jerusalem, I want to look at the book of Daniel, chapter 9, because Daniel prays for Jerusalem. And so I want to look at this as one option of a model prayer, and in many different ways we can pray for Jerusalem, but one option of David, uh, Daniel's method of praying, at least in chapter 9, of how he prayed, because we have it written down, exactly what he prayed for Jerusalem. And so let's take a look at that and see what lessons we can learn and maybe adapt that, some of that into our prayers for Jerusalem. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I made my request to the Lord God by prayer and supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Now, there's a lot there, so let's unpack that a little bit. In the timing, the first year of Darius, so that's with the Medo-Persians, right? So after the Babylon, right, we looked at that. After Babylon came, the Medo-Persian came. And so during the first year of the Medo-Persians, under Darius, the king of the Persians, where Cyrus was over the, Darius over the Medes and Cyrus over the Persians, Cyrus allowing us to go back to Jerusalem. So the timing, the first year of Darius, Daniel's praying. Okay, so now the Medo-Persians have it, so now maybe we can go back to Jerusalem. We're getting close to to the time of 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied that we'd be able to go back to Jerusalem. And so he's praying for Jerusalem at that time. And he says he makes his repressed, request to the Lord God by prayer and supplication with fasting. And so as we pray, 
good for us to fast and pray from time to time, to skip a meal or something that gives you extra time to pray. Fasting gives your mind clearer when you're praying. Fasting from food gives your mind the ability to hear God better and have a clearer mind when we're fasting. But anyway, the time, whether skipping the meal and skipping the cleaning or some other thing to skip, so we have extra time specifically to pray for Jerusalem. It's not a bad idea. So that's what Daniel did. He fasted with sackcloth and ashes. Again, at that time, Jerusalem was demolished. The temple was demolished. And so he's praying in mourning at that time. And he prayed to the Lord God with confession, and we'll come back to that. And then he says, O Lord, great and awesome God. And it's good for us to start our prayers with exalting God. Giving praise to him, lifting him up. Not just presenting our problems first off, but starting with praise of him. Start of, you know, David, Daniel could have come, oh God, our temple is still destroyed. Oh, help our temple, help our city. No, he starts with praise and starts with exalting God. And that's a good place to start any prayer. Because it makes God big and makes our problems small when we put things in proper perspective, as they really should be and as they really are. So he starts with that. And then he says, who keeps his covenant and mercy. So he's two aspects. He's a covenant-keeping God. So he keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant. And God's covenant, also his law, right? He keeps his laws. His covenant is law. He keeps his covenant and he keeps his promises. So he's faithful. And yet he's also a merciful God. So he's both together. Able to keep his promises and keep true to his word, keep true to what he said, keep true to his law. And yet at the same time, able to be merciful. That's a beautiful, fine balance that God plays out for us throughout the scriptures. And then he says, with those who love him and those who keep his commandments. Again, two aspects, love and keeping the commandments. Somehow in our minds, we, we have a tendency to think those things are opposite of each other, and we fall into one or two camps. Either we get into this, this fake love, this, this sentimental love, this, this all just nothing but mercy love, all is just everything goes. Just If you're so loving, you can't say no to anything, and you can't uh, correct anyone, and there's no standards, and that kind of love that just lets everyone and anyone do whatever they want, especially me, that I can do whatever I want. I'm just being loving to myself, and God's being loving to me. Just let me do whatever I want, whatever feels natural. If I don't want to go to work today, I just won't go to work today. I'm loving myself. It's just this love, you know, that, and if I didn't make a mistake, I just won't, you know, correct it or anything. Just, just anyone, just love, 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 love. Or then we get on the other side, the keeping the commandments, and we just have this commandment, 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 commandment mentality, and that makes us usually uh, commandments for everybody else, and condemning of everyone else, and holding everyone else to a high standard. But no, Daniel understands there's a balance. So those who love God, who have a loving heart, who are merciful, but also who keep God's commandments. And so just like God, having that balance of commandments and love, of truth and promises and faithfulness and yet also mercy. That beautiful blending of both. And we see that in, in the Ark of the Covenant. We have the, the Ark of the Covenant, which has on top of it God's mercy seat. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, we have the Ten Commandments. Mercy and commandments. God, the Ark of the Covenant. Right? So God's covenant that has mercy and commandments blended together. 
And we see that on, on, on Yeshua dying for us. He died for our punishment. He died to pay the price for us. So he upheld his laws, paying the price for the law. Because if he, if he could just say, well, there's no more laws, well, then he doesn't have to pay a penalty. There's no more laws, there's no more penalty, there's no more wrong. But no, since he paid the price, he's acknowledging that wrong was done and that the law has to be upheld and that a payment has to be paid. And yet at the same time, by him dying for us, he has been merciful to us and merciful to the world. And so we have that balance right there. And again, throughout the scriptures, God's balance and his love in the Garden of Eden. Right? He, he kicks Adam and Eve out, upholds his law, but doesn't have them die right away and allows them to offer sacrifices to receive forgiveness. So mercy and law blended together. That's the character of God. And that's the character that he says that he wants us to have. And that's what Daniel's praying to that God for those type of people. Verse 5. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. And so Daniel, and we have the record of Daniel, we have basically his whole life written in the scriptures, and it doesn't record any open, known, rebellious sin. And if the Bible, if he did, I mean, the Bible would record it. It records David's sins, it records Moses' sins, but no recorded open, rebellious sin against Daniel. And even again, when when Daniel's accusers try to find something against him, they can't find anything against him. They tried. They tried hard. And so they have to then come something against, his, against the law of God, change the law of God in order to make him a, a uh, criminal of the state, make the law of his God illegal. And that's how they have to get him to, to break the man-made laws, the nation's laws, because they'll uphold God's laws. And so Daniel, faithful, but he still prays, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. He's not praying, oh Lord, help them rebels over there. Help those idiots over there. Help those unbelievers over there. Oh Lord, help them to believe. Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like them. I'm so glad I'm not like one of them. I'm so glad I'm better than that. He doesn't see himself as better than anyone else. But Lord, we have sinned. He sees himself as corporate humanity. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, even though there was no open, rebellious sin recorded against him. Still in his heart and his mind, he knows his weaknesses, he knows his frailties, he knows times that his motives haven't always been right, and he's confessed and been forgiven and cleansed by the power of the Lord. And so we have sinned. And so he pleads for God to forgive all of us as he's praying for Jerusalem. And so another lesson in praying for Jerusalem, don't be praying as, as if it's a separate thing, a separate people group. And we're not praying for the city, the stones, right? But the people. And so as we pray for the people, not as a them and us, but as a oneness. And beginning with prayer and confession. And exalting God, and exalting the true God, and having a true picture of God, one who's merciful, but yet law-keeping and law-upholding and confessing our sin to that merciful and loving God. Because our sins are disobedience to his precepts and his laws. So including ourselves. So begin prayers with exalting God and then confession. Really, as we think of the sanctuary, which was on the Temple Mount, which is the heart of Jerusalem, 
You enter in through the courts of praise. You enter into the gates of praise, David calls it in the Psalms. The gates of praise. They enter into the gates of praise and then the first piece of furniture we come to is the altar for sacrificing where sins were confessed. And so same in our prayer. We entered God in prayer with praise and then we confess our sins. That should be the next step in our prayers. Verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face to the men of Judah, of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off in all countries to which you have driven them. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. So again, some more confession of sins, and again, corporately, we have sinned. He does this over and over again. We're not going to look at every verse, but over and over again, we have sinned, we have sinned, we have sinned. This corporate repentance, being united together with the people, that's so key for us to understand in our prayers. To corporately be praying. When we're praying for somebody else or anyone else or anything, we are no better. We're just like them. Praying for them. There go I, except by the grace of God. Verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities to understand your truth. So again, upholding the law of Moses, accepting the punishment thereof, and accepting the punishment with everyone. We have not prayed. Daniel's a praying guy all throughout. Daniel chapter 1, he's praying. You know, he's, he's praying here for Jerusalem. He's not praying, you know, uh, holier than thou. He's praying, Lord, we have sinned. All, even my prayers, uh, I don't pray enough. And, and so all of it, he's praying, we have not prayed. We have not repented. We have not come to turn to your truth. So again, he's upholding truth and law, but pleading for God's mercy. Beautiful balance of both in this chapter and throughout the Bible. Verse 15, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. And so he's hauling back to, to you brought us out of Egypt. Another good thing when we pray to remind God of what he has done in the past. He's covenant-keeping. Remind them of his promises. Remind them of how he's helped in the past so that he'll help again in the future. More for our encouragement, more to build our faith because he has done this. And so he remembers the Passover. He remembers the Exodus. Lord, you've delivered our people in the past. Do it again today. And again, staying with a, uh, a mindset of confession. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your holy city, your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the inequities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around you. Again, he's not putting blame on anyone else. He's not saying, well, because of those Babylonians, but because of our sins, we have received the just punishment for it. So he's not, why me? Why me? Poor us. Why am I here in Babylon? Why have I become a eunuch? Why am I captive here? We're blaming on, oh, well, those guys back then. You know, I was a righteous follower of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and God. And, but those guys there, they rebelled. The stupid kings that we had, we warned them and they didn't listen to us. No, he's not blaming anyone else. Our reproach is seen to all because of what we have did, 
done. And even that, God, your judgments against us was righteous judgments. What you did was, was right and just. You know, we, we pray often, we, or there's a song I heard on the radio this week. Uh, it said, uh, uh, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified. You ever hear that hymn? In my life, Lord, be, I won't sing it for you. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. And I got to thinking, you know, when is God glorified? In the Bible, when is God glorified? Person after person after person. It's almost always, if not always, during problems. And there's not a whole lot of chapters about agreeing a sunny day out there and it being a great time and God being glorified. Almost all the time, God is glorified when people are going through struggles. When Daniel's in the lions, then Daniel, God's being glorified. When Daniel is being tested, God is being glorified. When they're building the statue, God is being glorified and they're being threatened to be thrown into the fiery furnace. That's when God is glorified during the hard times. And so we, we sing and we pray, Lord, be glorified in my life. And then a problem comes and we go, oh, why me? <laughs> why am I going through this trouble? Well, didn't you just pray for me to be glorified in your life? I'm trying to do that. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, for you to give glory to God through the problem. To have faith through the problem. Because, you know, people just think you're a nice person on a nice sunny day. Oh, yeah, well, you're nice, like every, other nice people. But when we have faith and are forgiving and loving against those who despitefully used us, that's when God gets the glory. Who are humble and meek before the Lord. That's when God gets the glory. And so during, he doesn't blame God. You're righteous, God, for you brought out this punishment. We deserved it. We deserved what we got. And again, all of us together. Not, well, they deserve what they got, and I got dragged along with it. We deserve what we got. All of us are sinners. All of us. No better than anyone else. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteousness, our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Right, so not because of anything we've done. But because of your great mercies, hear us. Because of your great mercies, open your eyes. Because of your great mercies, have mercy on us. Not because of anything on our part. He could have prayed, oh God, you know how good I've been. You know, it's been 70 years I've been here. And, and uh, you remember when they wanted me to eat that pork and I didn't eat that pork. So because I did good, now you owe me. You know, be good. And you remember they built that statue and we didn't bow down to that statue. And, and they told me not to pray. And I prayed anyway, God. I've been faithful. I've been faithful with my tithes and offerings. I've been faithful. I've been showing up every week. I've been so faithful, God. Come through for me. Right? That's how we often pray. Why me? I'm a good guy. I'm a good... Why me? Why am I going... Why not you? Right? Why, are you better than someone else? No, we're not. We're not better than Daniel. We're not better than David. We're not better than Moses. We're not better than anyone. We don't deserve anything other than death. That's what the Bible says. You deserve death. We deserve death. I deserve death. That's it. It's the only thing we deserve. So everything we get after that other than that is mercy. But it was not because of our righteousness. Because Daniel being able to not eat the pork and not eat, drink the wine was only by God's spirit living in him. The only reason he didn't have to bow to the statue or didn't get thrown in the fiery furnace or didn't get eaten by lions was because God gave him the ability to stand for the right. So if God gave him the ability to stand, God's Holy Spirit inside him, then who gets the glory? Who was righteous? It's God. God living through us. God living through Daniel and everyone. 
that gives us the ability to do right. So we don't get the glory. God doesn't owe us because we're good. I mean, we see that. We see that in the Bible. They came to Yeshua and said, oh, there's a centurion and his servant is sick. Please heal his servant because he was good to us and he helped us build the, the synagogue in Capernaum. You don't need to come in because he did something good. God's merciful because God's merciful. God's loving because God's loving. And God will do what is just and right as we pray. And he'll do even what is not just and right because he's merciful, but because we ask and make our petition before him. Because we have nothing to bring to him. He doesn't need anything that we have. And it's not because of our righteousness, and that's what Daniel says. Not because of our righteousness. We do not present our supplication to you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. And that's the same today. So when we pray today, praying for Jerusalem or anything, we bring our petitions not because of any good that we have done. We get no credit. But because of what God has done in the past, delivering us out of Egypt. What God has done in the present, giving me victory over sin today, yesterday, whenever. God gets the glory. Because of your mercies, hear our prayers. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. Your people, Yehuda, your people, Israel, your city, Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Where's God's name? By a call by your name. You've got three different terms there. God's and then God's name. There are people who think when it says by you, called by your name, we've got to change the name to fit, somehow get God's name in there. And there are people who take Yeshua and, and twist some of the letters and put some extra letters in there in order to have God's name, the yud Hey vav Hey, somehow in there. That's not what he's talking about, called by your name. Right? It's not Yerushalayim, it's Yerushalayim. You don't change it just because try and make your theology fit it. But when it says called by your name, it's not middle, the literal four letters put into the word there somehow. He's not talking syllables. He's not talking pronunciation, your name, called by your name. But God's glory, God's character, God's truth is what it means by his name. Right? We, we say that now, right? You go to buy a product, you say, oh, that, that, uh, that product, that, that's a good name, right? It's a good name, that's a name brand, Right? doesn't mean it's got a f nice flowing name. It doesn't mean it's a poetic name. It doesn't mean it, it just sounds good to the ear, the name, right? There used to be a commercial. I don't know if it's still around. Uh, I used to say, uh, uh, with a name like Smuckers, it's got to be good, right? So if it's got a horrible name to it, it's got to be good food inside it, right? You know, with a name like Smuckers, right? Like a name like, uh, you know, Cow Patties. It's got to be great stuff inside with a horrible name on it. <laughs> name like Smuckers. <laughs> And it just means that the name, the name, the company name, that they got a faithful name, that they have a good reputation. So since their name has a good reputation, then what they put inside is only good stuff. That's what they're meaning by that. Not that the Smuckers is a great sounding name, or easy to remember, right? But they're saying we've got a good reputation. You can trust us. We stand by our name. We stand by our product. We're not ashamed to let it be known that we are the ones who've put out this product. So God is saying, my name, my character, my truth, my righteousness, my heart is there. Right? So you take on his name, take on his character, uh, called by him, 
called his children, called his city. Not a literal name on it, but the, what the name means. Like Abraham has his name changed to represent what he becomes. Jacob has his name changed to represent what he becomes. An overcomer with God. Child of God. Delivered by God. Verse 20, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication to the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being called, caused to fly swiftly reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now the evening offering had to do with the temple services, had to do with the morning and evening sacrifices. But the temple for 70 years has been destroyed. There's no sacrifices going on for 70 years. But Daniel's praying, and God sends this man, which is this angel, Gabriel, to come to Daniel at the time of the evening sacrifice. And Daniel notes it that way. He's still clocking time by the morning and evening sacrifices. Because he knows that's how we receive forgiveness of sins. And that's what he's praying about. He's praying two main things here. Forgive us and restore Jerusalem. Those are the two main things he's praying about. As it says here, praying and confessing my sin and of Israel to the Lord my God for the holy mountain of God, Jerusalem. All right, so the two main things, confessing my sins for forgiveness and for the Jerusalem, for the holy mountain, for it to be restored. Two main things. And then God sends this angel Gabriel at the time of the evening sacrifice, representing, I'm going to give you the forgiveness of sins. That's what the sacrifices represent, the lambs dying the morning and evening sacrifices, and this temple in Jerusalem, where the sacrifices were. So bringing it right at that time, and it comes and causes him to fly swiftly. And he said, Daniel, I have come to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. And then it continues on, and we'll get into that more on another week, on the rest of the chapter and the rest of the fulfillment. But for right now, Gabriel comes and says, I've come to give you understanding. And we'll get into that understanding at the beginning of your supplication. So as Daniel begins to pray, God sends the command for Gabriel to come. I didn't get there till the time of the evening sacrifice. But as soon as we begin praying, God's hearing. God's acting. Now, we might not see the results of that action right away. But as soon as we pray, God hears. God's in tune with us. So fasting, praying, confessing, exalting God, humbling ourselves before him, uniting with everyone else in prayer, and praying for others, God hears and he sends Gabriel. And he calls him greatly beloved. And he says that about Daniel. And why does he say that about Daniel? Because he didn't eat the pork and he didn't eat the wine? Because he didn't bow to the statue? Because he continued praying and, didn't get thrown, and was willing to get thrown in lines then? Why is he greatly beloved? Because he's righteous? He's greatly beloved because God loves him. The same reason you're greatly beloved. Because God loves you. 
The same reason that everyone on this earth is greatly beloved. Because God loves you. And God loves them. And God paid the price for every single one of us. And we are all greatly beloved. Not because of any righteousness we have done. But because of God's great righteousness, you are greatly beloved by him. Therefore, consider the matter what matter. Well, that's Daniel chapter 8. And we'll get into that another week as well. This is Daniel chapter 8 and the rest of chapter 9 all flow together here at this point. To consider the matter and understand the vision to restore and build Jerusalem. What has Daniel been praying about? The restoration of Jerusalem. So God comes and tells you, I'm going to tell you how we're going to restore Jerusalem. I'm going to answer your prayer and it's going to happen. And then the rest of the prophecy. And, how, what's, and then the other thing that Daniel has been praying about? Making my confession, we have sinned, we have sinned. And he answers that too, until the Messiah, the Prince. Because it's the Messiah, the Prince, that comes as the ultimate sacrifice. As the substitution. Just as Abraham was willing to offer Isaac right there in Jerusalem, right on well, Jerusalem at that time, on, on Mount Moriah. And God replaced Isaac with a ram caught in a thicket. As a substitute. The Messiah becomes the substitute for us, dying for us, dying in our place, paying the price for us, liberating us from our sins. So Daniel praying for two things, Jerusalem and forgiveness of sins. God provides it both together. The Messiah will come and Jerusalem will be restored. And we're going to get into that aspect other weeks, another time. But for now, as we think about praying for Jerusalem, when you think about it, your own prayers, my own prayers. And if God has brought some lesson here that you can learn from, in a moment when we pray, if let's say, for instance, you thought, well, that's a good idea, I need to start my prayers with praise. Then a moment when we pray, ask God to remind you of that next time you pray. Because right? otherwise you'll forget this sermon by the time we're done eating. right? So, so pray and ask God to remind you, and then God will hear that, and he will do that in the next time you pray. He'll remind you to start off with praise. You know, or maybe to, that you need to be confessing your sins corporately, confessing your own personal sins, but also whoever you're praying with corporately. Lord, we have sinned. Have more of a corporate type of prayer in your prayer. So in a moment when we pray, you can ask God, Lord, give that to me. Make, humble me. Right? Give me that kind of a heart to pray for my sins and the sins of all people together. So it's holier than thou. Or thirdly, maybe you've been praying, that, asking God to do something for you because you've been so good, or because of this, or because of that. And you want to just say, Lord, not for my own righteousness, but because of your righteousness, Lord, hear my prayer. Fourthly, maybe you haven't been praying for Jerusalem, and maybe that text out of Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, has touched your heart, and you want to start praying at some point in your prayers, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, whatever God's impressing your mind, you want to make that part of your prayers. To pray, again, not for the stones, but for the people. And the people there, representing the people scattered through the world. Pray for God's people. You want to ask God in a moment when we pray, Lord, give me a heart. To love. Those who love you will prosper. Lord, give me a, a love for the people of Jerusalem, your people throughout the world. Give me that kind of heart. Give me love to pray for them. And God will do that. He'll remind you to pray for them. And if you had an attitude of 
Lord, thank, I'm thankful I'm not like that publican. I'm so thankful I'm not like those others. You've been praying that way. Lord, I'm better than them, but help them anyway. You want to surrender that? Humble yourself before the Lord. And we pray, as we do that, ask God to work in you and through you to give you his heart. Or if you've been in balance between mercy and truth, between love and commandments, haven't had a proper balance in those two things, bringing them together, bringing them into harmony, bringing them into one, as they were one in Yeshua, they'd be one in you and me. That we can both uphold and keep God's commandments and at the same time be loving towards others. Be faithful to God's promises and yet at the same time be merciful to others. We to have that proper balance. You need that balance in your life. In the moment when we pray, that God do his work in you. And also if God's brought some sin into your mind. Maybe there is some open sin. Maybe there is some rebellious area. Maybe just one area that God's been impressing your heart and mind. Maybe there's some area that you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing or, or you're not doing something that you know you should be doing. In the moment when we pray, you can ask for God's forgiveness, ask for God's mercy, ask for his cleansing because the Messiah has been sacrificed for you and you can receive his forgiveness. And so if that applies to you, as we pray, let God do his cleansing work and his deliverance and to put his laws into your heart and mind and give you the power to do them. So if any of those areas or maybe some other area God's been speaking to your heart and mind applies to you, let us pray together corporately and let God do his work. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we are thankful you are such a loving God. Thank you for your deliverance in the past. Thank you for restoring Jerusalem time after time after time as it's been such a tumultuous, tumultuous uh, history, back and forth and back and forth and wars and troubles. Thank you, Lord, for unifying it and restoring it, making it one again. Thank you for your deliverance in the past and in the present and continue into the future. Lord, forgive us for our sins and cleanse us. Remove out of all of us everything that's not of you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and live in us and out of us. And give us your heart to pray for your people and to pray for Jerusalem. Pray for your people all throughout this world. Thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. And give us a proper balance in our life. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.